VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is the briefing room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com Hello, Internet, and welcome to Scarred for Life, the podcast where we open up old wounds by looking back at the films that scared us as kids. I'm Terry. And I'm Mary Beth. Each episode, our special guest will bring with them a movie that traumatized them as a child. This week, our special guest is Rob Grant. He's the director of Harpoon, Monami, and the documentary uh, Fake Blood. Welcome to the show, Rob. Thank you very much for having me. Really appreciate we're, it. We're so excited to have you here. Yes, awesome. I've been meaning to, I've been loving, wanting to talk to you ever since I saw Harpoon back in Chattanooga. So I'm 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 really glad that you agreed to do this with us. Of course, anytime. I love talking movies, specifically ones that have scarred us for life. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, but before we launch into the movie that scared you as a kid, we do want to talk to you about your history with horror filmmaking, and obviously your latest built horror film Harpoon. That's all about toxic friendships and maritime superstitions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um. So. Just look at like start at the beginning. What was your experience with horror film growing up? Um, funny, funny enough, it was never horror films uh, that caught me at first. Uh, it was like it was whatever my dad was watching at the time, and I okay. remember mm. we went to so 1992. I was in grade two, and my dad took me to see what I thought we were going to go see was the Robin Hood with uh, uh, what's his name? Darn it. Kevin Costner? Kevin Costner. Okay. But but then we got to the theater, and I just see a poster on the wall that's blue with the guy on a motorcycle with the red eye. And I was like, Dad, I want to see that instead. And he goes, so do I, son. And that turned out to be Terminator 2. Nice. (laughs) And so I was in grade 2. I didn't even know what the F word was at the time. Um, But I just remember that being like, this is the craziest thing I've ever seen. I want to do nothing but wear leather jackets and spike my hair up from this point on. (laughs) And so it was just always whatever my dad or my, like, I remember The Fugitive was another one. Oh, yeah. So, you know, I was probably way too young. Like, it's just stuff that you're young enough, but you're like, there's something interesting happening here. And then it's only after I became, like, a movie fan did I start taking a deep dive into, like, old horror movies and, you know, going through all the Friday the 13th in a row. And you just, it, yeah, it's like, that was my intro to horror after, you know, kind of getting going through regular movies first and then realizing like, oh, wait, there's this really interesting 
category of movies that a doesn't take themselves too seriously and b really wants to shock and like horrify you in these yeah. interesting ways as like that seems like my personality of people <laughs> and so it's yeah that's kind of was i remember my introduction to horror movies and it was always like my like my, for my dad to take me to terminator 2 in grade 2 he obviously didn't care about our ratings or like <laughs> kind of blocking me from that kind of stuff but you did there was always that like parents that were worried about that so it was always the secret stuff that you'd have to find out whose house can we go to watch these crazy movies <laughs> and stuff like that like i used to have to sneak the vhs inside of another sleeve to your buddy's <laughs> house if the parents were kind of like not into that sort of stuff <laughs> right yeah. i yeah my parents i remember my parents growing up they were like uh they would alternate between being super liberal about what i was able to watch and then there were some movies that i would just linger in the in the horror section and stare at the vhs covers like oh i want to see that but my parents wouldn't let me so i, yeah. I it's it's weird it's a weird thing yeah and being being a child of divorce over here um divorce my parents my parents got divorced when i was four so it was a very and it was like my mom was not super strict but definitely more aware while my dad was like whatever yeah so it was kind of like on the weekends when i saw my dad i knew i could kind of get away with watching things yeah so it was always like kind of like oh cool i can go to dad's house and go to blockbuster and get like the the movies that I really want to see, but mom knows I shouldn't see, and I know I shouldn't see, yeah. but I wanted to see them anyway. Yeah, my there's only one time I recall my dad being appalled with what I was watching, and it was uh, Pet Cemetery Two, oh, the second one <laughs> with Furlong, because of, of course Terminator Two made me like in love with Edward Furlong as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then Pet Cemetery, I saw him on the cover of Pet Cemetery Two, and there's a scene I believe in that one where the dogs brought back and then it eats the kittens and there's just like a cage full of eaten kittens and i remember my dad going like what the hell are you watching fascinating how it's like the animal violence and not yeah. the human violence right. like that, that's still a thing today but it's just funny that like the, de- the one thing your dad questions are the dead yeah. kittens yeah well, I, and it was i don't think he even cared that much but i was watching it he was in the room and then my older brother walked in during that scene and my brother I guess was just looking for an excuse to get me in trouble. And he's ah, like, what yes. the hell is this on the TV? You're letting yes. him watch this. And then my dad felt the obligation to jump right. on me, I guess. Yes. <laughs> Gotta love older siblings. I was that older sibling. And I continue mm. to be that older sibling. <laughs> uh, someone's got to do it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, so what are some of your favorite horror films, would you say now? Oh, gosh. it's a, That's such an impossible question. I know. It's a hard question, for sure. Um, I mean, Exorcist is on there. Mm. Obviously, The Shining's on there. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of one of those things, like, I just rotate um, yeah. very strongly. Uh, I, I'll be honest, like, there hasn't been a ton of newer stuff that I was really ex- been too excited about. I'll be mm. the first to admit I didn't like it. Okay. Uh, I kind of oh, just... man. Uh, sorry if I, I'm no I uh no I I just recorded a, a podcast um like a few weeks ago about it chapter two and I I'm not a fan I'm not a fan of the first one I'm not a fan yeah. of this new one so. here's the thing and I don't this could be wrong but I feel like there is a there's like a need it seems like to jump to these scares now yes. without setting them up and i felt like yeah. it chapter one was just one set up to jump scare after another and i was just like i'm kind of mm. sick of this mm. i don't really care about these people where it's like you know the shining takes like an hour to get to anything scary right. i mean that probably wouldn't be allowed to happen nowadays because everyone would get bored to hell but 
I love that though. I love I love me yeah. a slow burn horror movie. Exactly. That's um, my, yeah, that's my cup of tea. Uh, Evil Dead Two shaped me pretty strongly. Mm, Hell yeah! <laughs> and we Sam Raimi's in town right now, and we're working on a show with them. And I had to work very, try very hard to not be like, "I love you." And it's just <laughs> trying to be professional while also wanting yeah. to like shake his hand and gush. Yeah. Yes. I just stayed. I just stayed in the next office silently. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, he's it's like that kind of stuff where it's like, yeah, there's just a lot. It's anything that kind of was trying something different. Okay. Because I remember do like there was always the you'd watch the Friday the Thirteenth, but you're only watching to see how they would make a death crazier in those types of movies. Same with same with like, yeah, I don't know. There's too many. What's your guys' favorite? <laughs> oh God. Aha! <laughs> uh, uh-huh. I've turned it around. <laughs> but it, it is. It cha- I was telling someone the other day. Like I always, whenever I tell someone that I write about horror movies like they always ask me what's your favorite scary movie yeah Yeah, it always changes but recently i well 30 days of night will forever be like my favorite kind of not great scary movie yeah um the vampire movie by david Slade. oh yeah oh yeah i'm a big fan of that one um and then another big favorite is obviously the shining yeah. That was one of my big introductions. And then with the Blair Witch Project. I was I, about to say, I was about to interrupt and say that movie scared the piss out of me. It scared me so much and I think it was one of that was another one of like my big introductions to horror where like I could I really understood from like when I wasn't that I was only 11 when I saw it but still like yeah. kind of understanding the power of horror and like I I really like found footage movies like I know that it's kind of a divisive yeah. Um, subgenre, but I do really enjoy them, and I thought Blair Witch Project was such an effective film. So definitely, that's one of my favorites. Yeah. I'm just I mean, they changed the game. Yeah, that, but that <laughs> one, like, I don't know how I was probably in uh, elementary school when I saw it too. But I saw it like opening night in the theater. I snuck into that when everyone still thought it was real. Oh, <laughs> see, I saw it like in my in like my house, like on DVD many years later. Oh so. yeah, no. Mine was uh, brand new. I remember being in the theater, biting my fist and feeling like I was yeah. going to throw up. Oh, my God. See, so I saw it. With, my dad showed it to me, and I saw it, and it was in, immediately after it was over, I threw a pillow at my dad and started crying. Yes. Um, and so he had to pick up um, his wife at the time from work, and I never went with him, and I, I had to go with him. I told him I'm getting in the car. And so <laughs> when he so picked good. her up, he was like, she was like, why is Mary Beth in the car with you? And he said, I showed her the Blair Witch Project. Project yeah. and she said, oh, "Okay, I get it." Like perfect. Yes, <laughs> I was, was kind of like you, Rob. I saw it in the movie theater. I was, um, I think it was 1999 when it came out. I think right. Um, I, yes, I think I was 18. So. I was 18 when it came out, so I'm I'm old. But uh, it scared the crap out of me because I was also seeing it when people thought it was real. Yeah, um, that just added a whole new level to it. Yeah, 1999 is correct. Yeah, good. That's what I thought. It was a good year for movies. Oh, I wouldn't be. You, I don't have that. Everyone's like, oh, this year this movie came out. I'm like, I can't remember this stuff, man. <laughs> <laughs> I just remember that so much came out in 1989, like The Matrix and American Beauty and Magnolia, yeah. and like just tons of movies. Yeah. Yeah. No, Blair Witch is good. Here's the thing, and I don't know if you feel the same way, but I'm finding it harder and harder to get scared nowadays. And so mm-hmm. maybe it's just my cynicism and I'm burned out, but... Uh, now I have to go to uh, video games to scare me, and there's so oh, yes. many scary yes. video games now, and like they all seem to take a piece from Blair Witch or something. Because like the Outlast video games. Oh my gosh, Outlast! I was gonna ask about that one. Yeah, 
They scare the crap. I don't know if we can swear on these. Oh, oh yeah, no, you, as you can. As much as you want. Perfect. Okay, great. I have a really bad sailor's tongue. That's Me okay. too. So do I. Fucking <laughs> hell. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. It scared the shit out of me, though, at the, the Outlast games. And it's like you can't even... I prefer that they don't give you any weapons because it's like you literally have no choice but to hide and run. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I'm... Um... I wrote a paper in my master's program actually about uh, first-person horror and using found footage aesthetics in Resident Evil Seven. Yes, um, oh, because yes. of like how it, it's like the first-person horror thing. Like it's like you're you are in a horror movie and like yeah. you actually have to be in the horror movie. And, like yeah. you have to make things happen and you have to push the action forward. Yeah, like, that game was scary as hell. It was. It was it awful. Was. And I played it in VR at one point, and it was <laughs> horrifying. It made me too sick to play. It, I couldn't play it. And <laughs> I I got to try it, which was awesome. But it, it's it is scary. But yeah. like definitely, I feel like the distance that you have when watching a horror movie is almost is collapsed with a video game. Yeah, yeah. So, but I have been trying to because I've been. There's a, uh, I'm sure you guys know the PT horror oh, game, yes. like the oh, demo yeah. and stuff. That was probably the scariest thing I've ever played. And I've often been thinking, I'm like, is, how can this be brought back to movies? And I haven't figured it out yet, but I'd love to. I'm going to figure it out one day. There's um, <laughs> a new game cut out called Visage that is that takes inspiration from PT. I don't yeah. think it's as scary, but there's it's got like a similar element to yeah. it it's not on it's on pc though or something right now isn't it i love that we're just... it's, it's it's in beta right now i think yeah. i think it's very narrow i think i yeah. can't remember what it's platform. on steam it's on okay. steam yeah we're just, i yeah. love that we're just plugging <laughs> on, <laughs> on video games right now. <laughs> it's awesome it's the way to do it there's also a blair witch mo- uh, game out now there is uh, yes yeah <laughs> and i'm having it not good and I gave up on it it Uh-oh. does a very good job of making you feel lost in the woods to yeah. the point that it just felt aimless. Like it Uh-oh. was not, it did not work for me. I quit it. Okay. Well, that's the next one I'm waiting to do with my buddy because we do the scary ones together because we don't like playing them by ourselves. <laughs> I love that though. Such yeah. a community. Yeah. Love it. Well, it's like, it was when we were playing PT, it was the first time that we'd act actively be like, okay, it's your turn. You take the controller. Like, <laughs> I'm like, I don't want to. Yeah. <laughs> it's the first time that's ever happened. We continued that tradition with Outlast and Outlast 2. That's great. That's fantastic. Now, I guess back to scary movies. <laughs> <laughs> so, when did uh, when did you know you wanted to be in the film industry? Um, I'm going to go back to the Fugitive uh, again. Okay. M- my dad worked as in the uh, uh, education system, and he was I think at the time he was a vice principal, and he came home with like, a VHS camera uh, that they were using for some presentation at the school, and I was allowed to use it that week, and so I the first thing I ever filmed was the recreation of the scene where he's hanging off the pipe overlooking like the gorge oh, being like, yeah. I didn't kill my wife. And he goes, and Tommy's like, I don't care. <laughs> and then he jumps in the water and I recreated that in a bathtub with figurines. Oh my God. Oh, that's amazing. And uh, I, I, it was just like after that, I kind of was hooked and I don't, I don't know what age I was, but it was well into early, early elementary school. And that kind of just, continued from there i don't think it was ever something i considered as a career because all through high school and college all i did was make skateboarding and snowboarding videos with my buddies hell yeah uh, my little yeah. brother does that yeah <laughs> it's great and then um uh, yeah i don't know it's like i quit film school in my first year because i actually hated film students <laughs> <laughs> it can be pretty pretentious amen yeah. i was just in film school and amen <laughs> yeah well it's, it's just like, don't get me wrong. These conversations I love to have because they ha- they happen fewer and fewer, I feel, as I'm getting older. Um, 
but it was like at that age, it's like I wanted to go to a party and be able to talk about something other than movies, and it's like it wasn't happening. Yes, I and understand so, that. So I like <laughs> two thumbed up the whole situation and then went and got a degree in philosophy, which is equally pretentious. <laughs> wow, what yeah. a shift! <laughs> yeah, and then awesome. yeah, it's just metaphysical conversations from that point on. But it was like I knew even during that, I'm like this would just be a tool that I'd be able to use going back into movies. And mm. I just I just got lucky um, that my first job after I graduated was um, editing PA on the Cabin in the Woods, and that's oh kind of, oh wow yeah and that was kind of my it's if, I mean if I'm sorry I'll take a deep dive into the, how my career's fractured in these two different elements is I always knew I wanted to work in the editing department because that felt a lot more realistic than say being yeah. a director, um, and so I was editing PA in that and then. I don't know, Vancouver has a lot of service production of um, like big studio shoots that used to come come up to Vancouver because of our low dollar up here. Um, and so Fox would always up, be up here with a ton of shows and I just got in friends with them and then assistant became an assistant editor. And then I'd start working with fantastic editors like Bill Hoy, who's Matt Reeves' editor. And you kind of just oh, yeah. start getting into those circles. And then mm -hmm. soon enough, I was working on the BFG uh, with Spielberg and Michael Kahn. And then I was doing the previs editor on the last uh, War for the Planet of the Apes, working with Matt. And it's just like that was one fracture of the career. But back when I was just the editing PAs and no one was giving me editing work, I was like, well, shit, I just should shoot a movie so that I have something to edit. And that turned out to be my first movie yesterday, which mm. has not aged very well. But <laughs> it gave me a chance. To, and then that just fractured into its own thing. And the festival circuit kind of just took very kindly to a dumb 21-year-old shooting a movie on film uh, when everyone was going digital. And it fractured into these two things. So I just edit for my day job. And then if there'd be a break of four months in between, me and the guys would just go fuck off and shoot our own movie and that kind of has just fractured in these two different streams of movie making for me that's i've been very blessed that have kind of both continued <laughs> cool yeah so it's been strange that way yeah um speaking you, you went through a lot of your uh uh your imdb like page type stuff that you've worked on but i gotta ask about twilight because mm -hmm. I noticed on it that you were that you were involved in Twilight Breaking Dawn, part one and part two. Part yeah. one, two. How was that? That was my last ever editing PA job, and I almost quit the business <laughs> after oh, really? that one. Oh no! Uh, I'll try not to speak disparaging about yep, the no, company that it. made it, <laughs> but um, it was that was a tough one. They'd be shoot they were shoot in the woods in Squamish, like an hour out of Vancouver, and security was so crazy on that oh, one. Oh, I can imagine. Like, it was famously the one where, like, People Magazine put a million-dollar bounty if someone could get a photo of Kristen Stewart in her wedding dress. Oh, my gosh. And so there'd be, like, the, the, there's literally, like, people climbing fences. They had to have security with night vision cameras to try to keep, like, people from getting out of the set. It was just oh a Oh, my night. God. And I'd be the, because security was so tight, they didn't trust anyone with the dailies. So I'd be the one. I'd do my job all day in Vancouver. And they'd be shooting night shoots out in Squamish, and I'd have to drive the dailies out there at night to screen uh, their lunch break. So I was doing, like, these 20-hour days, and it was just, like, I remember being like, this is not worth my time. Wow. Um, but everyone, everyone on the movie was quite pleasant. It was just yeah. under ridiculous circumstances that things had to go the way they did. And I just remember being like, this, this is not a happy, happy time. <laughs> 
Yeah, I was I was always curious because like I I know that I mean those came out at like the the zeitgeist of that kind of young adult uh you know action horror type thing and I it just I can't imagine how working on that must have been. It was it was weird. It's just surreal. I mean every like I said everyone was on it. It had um the same DP who did Pan's Labyrinth. He was super mm. awesome. It's like that's the one thing is you if you just stay quiet and lurk in the background, you can kind of watch these real awesome pros and kind of learn you know some pick up try and pick up some tricks from them uh as best as you can <laughs> and i feel like it's definitely helped the stuff that i've learned from all these movies kind of has definitely helped um you know bill condon was the director and he was awesome so and like even seeing you could even tell back in the day like you know both Kristen and robert patterson probably could have been phoning those movies in but you could tell that they were taking it serious and trying to do the best performance they could with the weird material that they had to work with and it's just like you know that's where you kind of go like oh shit and you know it's like this kind of you got to try and make this stuff matter regardless of what you're doing so it's is uh you try to just take those away rather than the 20 hour days <laughs> right exactly yeah and um, one other thing I noticed is uh, as I was looking through uh, Harpoon's uh, IMDb page and, uh, and seeing the credits, I keep seeing names pop up in your in your work, like Michael Peterson, mm-hmm. and Curtis David Harder. Mm-hmm. Um, is are there you guys are all um, working in in Canada? Are, it, what's the indie horror scene like there? Because it seems really supportive from from this angle. Yeah, so I work. I like live out of Vancouver, which is on the mm-hmm. west coast. There. Curtis and Mike are both in Calgary, Alberta. Actually, I think Curtis has just moved down to L.A. Um, where are you guys based, by the way? Well, I'm I'm in the middle of, the, of America. I'm in yeah. Nebraska. Nice. And I'm on the East Coast. I'm in Maryland. Perfect. Yeah. yeah. Two places I've yet to go. And two. <laughs> but um, Vancouver is actually really bad for indie films in general. Um, like I said, we're a service industry town. Mm-hmm. So it's really tough to pull... Uh, anyone away from the gigs like Netflix comes up here so much they just built a studio here oh wow and they're pay people handsomely to make sure that they keep all the people on the crew so when you come by with like hey we've got an indie film that we want to shoot and they're like how much can you pay and like pretty well nothing they're (laughs) like nah we'll stay on the Netflix show for a year (laughs) (laughs) Um, so that's always been the big battle here but what happened what was interesting what happened is Calgary now has or Alberta, I should say, has really interesting tax breaks as well. Um, and so that's when Fargo and Hell on Wheels mm. um, and all these other shows started going there. And so the crews there got really well trained under these big tentpole series and shows. But then those shows left. So you had these awesome crews going, hey, we got nothing to work on. And they're not burnt out. It's not like crazy service industry there. So... Mike and Kurt would always be like, you know, we got these crews, really professional crews waiting to shoot stuff. And I think everyone there just realized that combined with the tax breaks. It was like, let's take advantage of this and just start shooting, knocking out a bunch of stuff. Mike started a company there with um, a guy named Lori Venning, who's a really wicked entrepreneur and just wants to see cool movies be made. And so they started financing these indies. You know, Curtis uh, is a producer under, um, gosh, now I'm not even remembering his name. Uh, he works with Colin Minahan. Yeah, in Minahan stuff. So, and Colin's from Colin's from that area as well. So it just became this hub of like indie stuff. And I, yeah, it's just everyone kind of wants to work on each other's stuff. And it's not a very big community there, so it kind of just happens that everyone trades each other's shows. And I'm, and the funny thing is, I've been hoping for that for so freaking long because I was like, 
the Duplass brothers, uh, Swansburg, like all those guys kind of all were very insular and working on each other's projects. And then it became no surprise to me that they all blew up at the same time because they were also darn supportive of each other. And me and Mike have been like, why don't we have that in Canada yet? We should be trying to do this with everyone. And then I feel like it was just this year we're at Fright Fest. I think there is uh, like six or seven wicked Canadian like indie genre uh, movies yes. there. And it's like I feel like it's finally – I mean here's the big problem. For a long time saying you were a Canadian movie was the kiss of death because, you know, they were known for making either the really – cheesy dramatic coming of age stories or like the really sexy ones too right. <laughs> it's, and it's like other than um uh like cuban stuff like that we weren't really known for a lot of our genre stuff because unfortunately uh, other than like vincenzo natale like i said who did cube the canadian system wasn't really supportive of genre stuff uh, because they didn't treat it as like artistic, and then of course in the last couple of years now that with Get Out and all this stuff, the accolades that are now starting to come, and people realizing you actually can say something about society without having to preach about it. So now things are starting to change a little bit, but yeah, it, it took well, a long time for anyone to take us seriously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just noticed that like a lot of a lot of really good films have been coming out from that area. I mean, I, I know you were an editor on Knuckleball, which mm-hmm. I, I really enjoyed last year, and then Thank Curtis you. has a uh, Spiral coming out. Yeah, um, and I saw that uh, a screener from Fright Fest, and that movie is is phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, and then Harpoon. So like, I just I'm I'm seeing like all of these this this churning coming out of there, and it's it's yeah. really kind of exciting to see. Yeah, and well, it helps though because like those guys are producers on my movie, but we're all we all we do is share our movies in a rough cut, and we've gotten close enough now that we can be like, dude, this is shit. Take this out, fix this. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> like, you need the brutal honesty sometimes to make sure that you're not like, hey, check out this awesome movie I got, and they're like, actually, you should really consider this. <laughs> and it's uh, I think that's helped us all be very uh, uh, make our stuff better because we don't let each other get away with anything. <laughs> right, that's good. That's awesome. Um, so, actually, I just watched Fake Blood today, your uh, documentary. <laughs> I watched it last night. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, and so for those, obviously, who aren't familiar, it's a documentary about a disturbing fan video that you and Mike Kovacs received after mm-hmm. seeing Mon Ami. Um, this is a fascinating documentary to watch, especially now with all like the discourse about Joker. And yeah. you guys even bring up the Joker in your documentary, which I think, like, at this point, I'm like, fake blood, everyone should just, like, kind of watch to this at this point in the weird film discourse that we are going through at this moment. Yeah. But all that aside, how did that, both receiving that video and making that in documentary, just change your perception of both fan culture and then what it means to make horror movies and represent acts of violence on screen? Well, first of all, I swear I'm not a, as big a prick as the movie makes me oh, seem. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, I, that movie kind of breaks my heart a little bit because I think it's the smartest thing we've ever made. Uh, it might have just been two years ahead of the, the, when it needed to come out because yeah. it was dealing with fake news and how easy it is to mm-hmm. get wrapped up between fantasy and reality. Um, and our distributor who took it on at the time did not see the vision that we were saying is what makes the movie interesting. And they're like, oh, we should try to pitch this as a found footage movie. I'm like, you're an idiot. Like, Oh. Yeah. Huh. Uh, wow. So so they, I have very, m- m- not mixed feelings, but just like r- I feel really uh, bummed that that didn't take on the life that I 
thought it would because I think it brings up a lot of really interesting stuff to talk about. Yeah. And it seems like that conversation's, yeah, ramping up even more now. Um, and yeah, you know, it's like I, I talked to someone yesterday about the Joker. Where <laughs> they're like, oh, what's your what's your opinion on this whole thing of, you know, people being worried about uh, going into the uh, theater and shooting people up or inspiring other and I was like yeah but the opposite is a, a much worse result and it's that's that's how I feel about it it's like well the opposite end to this is that we don't make these things because we're scared of that outcome yeah. and that is like the absolute like death of art and I just like I can't support that yeah right. so my opinion is you know I hope no one does does that but the opposite outcome almost seems worse to me I just and that's a maybe a really callous thing to say because, you know, I don't know. It's just such a weird one. But it's I just you can't let the bad guys win is basically how I feel about it. Yeah. And like I, I so I saw Joker at um, Toronto International Film Festival. And mm-hmm. I mean, I did not like it. I, mm-hmm. I have a lot of problems with it. But I mm-hmm. also like don't th- I think the attention it's getting is like blowing out of, out of proportion yeah. at this point. And like. I don't mind violence. I, I mean, we all watch horror movies. You make horror. Like, we're all into horror and can do, like, kind of have that separation yeah. of the real and the cinematic. Yeah. And I hope it doesn't have that effect, like you said. That would be tragic. Mm-hmm. I just think that the wrong, like, I, you know, there's like that worry that the wrong people, especially after what happened with The Dark Knight, are going to see it and think something differently. But I guess all you can do is hope that people understand that it's fake. Yeah. It's just, yeah, the whole thing's kind of vexing to me it's the same argument of like violent video games make violent people and it's just like yeah give me a break uh, we've seen enough <laughs> research that that's not the case but you know like i said the opposite of just being like okay we well we can't make this stuff anymore because it's it's, it's yeah it's that why can't we have nice things argument it's like mm-hmm. i don't want to go down that road period yeah. so right. if a bunch of psychos are going to take um inspiration from it they were going to probably get inspiration from something else um Exactly. I mean, it's a a fair point. (laughs) Like, here's the bigger part. I love how people are like, "Here's what we need to stop," but no one actually just wants to talk about how we could probably just increase, you know, our mental health support. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, you're not wrong. Um, You know, that you feel like that would be the better approach, but I don't know. We're getting to a point where it seems like there's a lot of there's a study that was done, not a study, an experiment that was done. Uh, I think in the 60s, where they put a bunch of rats into uh, like an ecosystem, built a fake ecosystem with a bunch of rats. And they put in just the right amount of food and just the right amount of rats that everyone was living peacefully and it was like sustainable. And then they decided to see what would happen if they overloaded this pen with rats. And all of a sudden, like random diseases, uh, the rats started cannibalizing each other and like things just went bananas. And it's like, I feel like maybe we're just in a point where that's kind of happening in real life. (laughs) And I don't know. That's just my theory anyway. But I I find it interesting. Um, But with fake blood, like especially how did that change your perception of like fan? Did it change your perception of fan culture? Mostly because it all was because of a fan video you got from the film. And I know you don't really have a Twitter. Did that have anything to do with your kind of like staying off of social media at all? Um, It has probably more to do with me being super sensitive and 
not wanting to not get crippling anxiety and depression <laughs> from people being people being able to tell me they don't like my stuff. Ah, really yes. understand. Fair it's enough. A, it's, a, Although, it's, a, it's it's my defense tactic. <laughs> I, I will say, on the opposite side, it made it really hard to try to find you to like tell you how much I loved your movie. <laughs> I appreciate that. Well, you know, that's the thing is, I have the like people that want to find me. They there's they can, but yeah. I just want to make it a little more. I don't know. I get, I, no, I get it completely. I love the Terrence Malick version. Like, doesn't have to give interviews or explain his movies, and just kind of goes out there and makes shit for better or worse. Um, you know, I don't know. I mean, I'm at a point where I'd rather, like I said, this isn't a knock on these discussions because I love just being able to talk about the philosophy of movies and stuff. But it also at least stops that, like, hey, why didn't you consider this stuff? You mm-hmm. know, like I don't yeah. want to have the Joker conversation with people who are like. Yeah, there is an element that maybe has made me a little more guarded, you know. I, yeah. That when they got the fan video and stuff, because I did make a much more concerted effort back then to be like, to people, it's like, hey, I love your movie. It's like, oh, thanks very much. Feel free to reach any time. And they're like, well, here's this. And I was like, that's not what I meant. <laughs> and you're like, no, 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 no. <laughs> that wasn't what I meant to say. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I don't, but here's the funny thing in hindsight, and Mike always jokes to me about this. He's like, that guy could have just been trolling you so hard. And like, that's the ultimate joke. And I'm like, fair point. I don't want to find true. out. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, But I really, I enjoyed the documentary a lot. I think it was a really awesome look into and like thoughtful discussion about violence on film. And I thought it was really great and heartbreaking, but I loved it. Um, So moving from like, you know, talking about violence, you have a new movie coming out on October 8th. It's called Mm -hmm. Harpoon. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, I can tell you that at one time it was called a boat movie, <laughs> and then a, and then a movie at Fantastic Fest came out last year called The Boat, and I was like, shit, yep. we better change that title. I, and I, I saw that movie. Nice. Well, but, and, and um, I like Harpoon better. <laughs> oh, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, so what is Harpoon about? Um, the best pitch that that Yellow Veil, who our sales agents. Uh, and us agreed upon was that it's a knife in the water by way of Seinfeld characters and then people that don't know a knife in the water might know dead calm Um, and then if they don't know that then I don't know what to tell you it's three bad (laughs) three bad people on a boat that have to be forced to survive with each other (laughs) yeah pretty much it there it is (laughs) uh, but it also it's also kind of selling it short I think Um, so you have Brett Gallman um, for the narration who Listeners, you might know him from Fleabag. Mm-hmm. Um, he's he's great on that. Um, but I, it was such an inspired choice to do that um, because it, it kind of frames the movie in a completely different light. Yeah. And I was kind of curious how you came up with that. Was that something that was from the very beginning, or did did this just sort of like happen while you were making the food, the the writing the script, or how did that come about? The narrator was in there from the first draft, but in a much more like different iteration. It it was actually much more angry. Okay. Uh, Like I'm sure people can tell the movie kind of comes from a place of anger and frustration. Yes. Um, I was at a point in my life I would just come off a directing for hire gig. You know, fake blood had done a lot worse than I thought it would, and I was kind of just being like, "Fuck, I might not get another chance to do one of these," and I really didn't like how things were going with the industry specifically the indie indie circuit where it's just so hard to get noticed and make a movie now this and so i told mike i was like shit man if i don't get another chance to do this i 
need to get this movie off my chest where I have all these things to say uh, and I want to try all these things that I've been too scared to try before. And when I pitched him, he's like, yeah, write that. And and then uh, it had the narrator in there from draft one. And it was because I knew that I, I like talking with people, specifically with very close friends. And you kind of develop this shorthand that outsiders don't get. Mm-hmm. But I didn't want to interrupt their shorthand with having to be expositional with their dialogue. Mm-hmm. And right. so I knew that the narrator was my way to say all of their backstory so that when they started interacting with each other, they no longer had to, you know, reference weird stuff. Yeah. And that was kind of the initial instinct with the narrator. And then realizing through the rewrites and through the editing that it also provided much needed comedic break to this these really bickering kind of exhausting conversations as well as giving audience permission to laugh about the situations as well like that was all kind of discovered i'd love to say that i was smart enough to know that we needed that (laughs) very early but it was initially just as a means to get the expositional stuff out of the way and then an editing process where it went through a ton of iterations did we discover that it needed to provide more than that and you know we tried everyone's voice under the sun and like it was mine up until four days before the premiere at oh my god wow. wow yeah when we locked gelman in and i had to fly down to la record his voice fly back the same day edit him on the airplane print it to dcp and hand carry the like un like basically unreviewed unfinished cut to rotterdam and then the first time we see it is in a amphitheater with 800 people and holy shit <laughs> oh my god that's yeah. insane terrifying yeah. <laughs> i'm glad it all came together because uh his his voice is iconic i mean well, he has yeah. that kind of it's crazy like, right <laughs> dry dry wit to him that just it it kind of frames the movie in a way that without it it would be just a very grim story about these three terrible people yeah and i'm glad that you brought up that it kind of gives the audience permission to laugh because I didn't really know what I was getting into when I first started watching this movie because I, no. <laughs> I, I mean, I, you know, my recently my experiences with like boat movies would be either like uh, Donkey Punch or um, I think Open Water 2 was the one on the on like a raft or they fall overboard and they're stuck in the. So like I'm like, how are you going to make this this movie and how is this going to be done in such a way that it's it's entertaining because those movies kind of bored me. And so I, I this I didn't know what I was getting myself into, but I just I loved from the very from the very get go just the tone that you establish with even it kind of opens for those who haven't watched it yet with a uh, with um Rock, with uh, Gelman just like talking with people about like yep okay we're gonna go let's let's go get it you know and it just it gives a kind of artifice to it but I also just thought it was really funny but I'm rambling but yeah I, no, I no. just I love it. <laughs> It Thank reminded you. me of a nature documentary. It's like you're watching a nature documentary on, yes. on Discovery Channel or National Geographic, and you're just oh. narrating three weird yeah. animals being mean to each other. That's probably the best way anyone summed it up. <laughs> <laughs> well done. I'm going to steal that from now on. <laughs> this is what we meant to do from minute one. Perfect. There um, we go. No, like, it went through a million iterations. It was much more cynical at the start of these people, but then we realized through test screenings that if the narrator was judging these people harshly, so did the audience. Mm, and it yeah. took them... It was already hard enough to get people on board to want to watch people be bad people. Um, 
And so, you know, through a bunch of iterations, we ended up on a place where we were sitting with Gelman and I'm like, okay, you need to approach this from a place of like complete despondence. It's like, uh, that's a perfect descriptor for it. That's yeah. He attacks it. Yeah. Because it's like the second you show any hint that you're judging their behaviors, the audiences are going to start doing that too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's like it's like I always use the example of it's like you know when a friend's introducing you to someone and they say oh but don't worry he's not a bad person you're always like this person's probably a bad person. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's like regardless of what you say it's going to influence the next thought pattern. Yeah. And so yeah, no, working with him was a treat. He's a complete pro. We got so lucky that now that he's blowing, he's like blowing up now with yeah. Fleabag and Stranger Things season three and Mr. Yeah. Mercedes and like I'm not surprised because he was fantastic to work with and he brought so much to it and his sense of humor is very similar to what we're trying to go a good example that he brought up that i had in my head but i didn't tell him because i didn't want to influence is we're sitting in the booth he goes you know what this reminds me of is the the narrator from magnolia and and it's because he said like we were talking where that narration at the beginning has nothing to do with the movie but without it when frogs start to rain, you'd be like, what the fuck? What the fuck, yep. Exactly. But because the narrator says, here's some weird shit, maybe perhaps expect some more weird shit to happen, <laughs> you're kind of like ready for it, and that's kind of how we treated it. It's like, just let him present this weird scenario. But then again, you know, I've seen plenty of people tell me they don't like the narrator, and they think it's a cheap storytelling technique, and then my response is always, fuck you, Goodfellas is the greatest movie of all time. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. I, so. I don't. I don't know if the movie would work as well without the narration. It's yeah. just it yeah. really frames it in such a unique and interesting way that I, I don't see it as a as a gimmick. I see it as definitely needed for this kind of story. Yeah. No. It's it's one of those things that until you until it was made without it, yeah, I can guarantee it wouldn't work nearly as well because the audience already has to play enough catch up storytelling wise. We open on like a fight of two characters right. and the audience is just left to be like, Oh shit, what's going on. Right. I just feel like it would have been too much for them to ask to just be like, follow these people you don't know doing bad behavior without any hint that this might be bizarre. <laughs> now, another thing um, was that I, I, I learned so much about uh, nautical superstitions yeah. and, <laughs> um, and like, I, I knew the story of Richard Parker, but I didn't really know the story of Richard Parker. So I and I found myself going down wild rabbit holes just oh, reading yeah. stuff about it. How did how did that come up with that? Did you how much research did you have to do to to figure all that in? Now, I don't know if you ended up in the cannibalism at sea rabbit hole, but oh, that's, yeah. that's a dark one. <laughs> and it's pretty well you're allowed to do it is the end result as long as you don't <laughs> murder the other person. Um I my writing process is weird in that like I'll come up with a premise. So I'm pretty sure the first thing that I came to my head was, you know, three people that don't like each other but forced to survive with each other. And then I'll put that in the notes column on my phone. And But then it has to sit for like years until the pieces fall together. Uh, and so I, you know, I'm probably like a year after I had written that premise, I've stumbled across the Richard Parker coincidence. And I was like, that is a hilarious coincidence. And mm-hmm. then wouldn't it be even funnier if the people in this movie also were aware of this coincidence? And I, that's kind of just, you know, it's all these various things that kind of I pick up in real life that just end up influencing the movie over a long period of time before I can even... That's my... Be- Anytime someone's like, oh, what's your writing process? My biggest suggestion is when you get a great idea, don't write it when you're really excited about it right away. Because you haven't taken enough time to consider uh or you know allow all these things to 
percolate in your brain because anytime I've been like really excited about a new idea and I'll write it, I'll get to page 30 and be like, damn it, I got nowhere to go now. <laughs> and so it's like, yeah, Richard Parker, all that stuff. The nautical superstitions came from a place because I have, I'm a kind of a superstitious person and we live on the West Coast. We have boats and I don't like tempting fate. <laughs> mm. uh, but originally in the script, that whole um, beginning of part two that recaps all the superstitions was not in the script that came about in editing because wow. in the, yeah, the, we had all that stuff in the movie. Like it was always in there, but we always thought it was going to be just a nice, clever behind the scenes wink for anyone that knew any of them. Like, you know, we thought any sailors watching this movie would be like, Oh, redheads oh, on a boat. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but then we realized in editing that we just needed uh, like this kind of like reprise, a bit of a breather and a reset for chapter two and that's when we've decided to kind of build this little thing that in hindsight it's like one of the things that people talk to us the most about so i'm glad we recognized that we needed to do that um and kind of made it more upfront. but yeah there all of those things are just ridiculous and the, even in my research the fine trying to figure out where the redheaded superstition came from we couldn't so that's why we decided to just write it and it's like don't know where it came from <laughs> so actually that's so funny so i um interviewed someone from i interviewed the director of sea fever yeah um and she taught i asked her about they had a redhead superstition in their film too and so i asked what what's up with redheads and she explained it to me that it, it is potentially it started in Ireland, and it's a it's thought to be because redheads were like Vikings were redheads. Yeah. So then, when they came to Ireland, redheads meant that you were going to get pillaged, and somehow <laughs> that evolved the superstition because redheads meant Vikings, which meant violence. That does not surprise me. Yeah. That the Irish would come up with such nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> My my girlfriend's Irish from Dublin. She's hearing ah. in the, she's hearing me in the next room say that very loudly. So that is where I have heard that it might come from. But again, I like you said, it's, I don't know how confirmed that is. But it is a potential explanation for the redheaded I, superstition. I like it. Oh, now Chloe's laughing in the next room. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, I also heard that it could be because of they thought the sirens of the sea, like the mermaids, had like you know these this glowing red hair and stuff. Oh. The funny thing is, it's no matter what story you give, it's complete garbage. Like, oh yeah, one hundred percent. It makes no logical sense whatsoever. <laughs> but so uh, one of the things this is really kind of a dumb question slash comment, but one of the things that uh, if you are watching a movie that um at a festival and you're taking notes the one of the things that i like to do is i like to go through the credits and i noticed on the credits that you have that this movie added another list to your talent with shark wrangling you are now my favorite person of all time (laughs) (laughs) is that a legal requirement or did you actually have to deal with sharks at sea so here's the backstory to that oh, credit yeah, because, so <laughs> because that's my second Shark Wrangler credit. Oh. <gasps> Whoa. If you can believe it. The other one happened on a movie called Light of Family Burnham, which was shot here in Vancouver. And I was PAing on a buddy's film shot at night uh, at a beach. And then you, at the end of, you know, on the volunteer, this is way back when we were in film school. And then you volunteer your time and you have to sign those little releases. And it says, what would you like your credit to be? But it only gave name. And I put Rob Grant, but then I hyphened it and put Shark Wrangler on there. And then he called me up and he's like, hey, I saw you. Like, I've got your sheet in front of me. He's like, what the hell is this about? 
And I was like, well, did you see any sharks in your movie? He goes, no. And I go, exactly. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> and so we were, you know, you're a year into editing Harpoon. You've been staring at this movie too long. You go crazy. And then Mike, my producer's putting the credits together. And he's like, hey, I gave you another credit. And I was like, oh, yeah, what's that? He's like, shark ring. And I was like, of course. And he's like, you want to know why? Because I didn't see any sharks in this movie. <laughs> and so I was like, I, I've, I've done my job again. <laughs> I am so glad because here's the thing. Like, as I was watching that movie, I was like, I want to talk to Rob Grant. And honestly, one of the questions I wanted to ask about is the shark wrangling. Yeah. Because there are no sharks in the movie. Well, and if you notice, it's not just me. It's me and P.T. Butman. Yes. Is the other one. And that is the pseudonym that me and Mike always use when we're in like the low point. We're like, shit, we need to... We need to credit this movie under P.T. Butman. Like, that's just our pseudonym for when the movie's going sideways and we don't know what to do. Okay, so, that's that's fucking awesome. Yeah, but like it's like you get so you get so bananas and stir crazy that you need to start putting in these inside jokes to try to. So if if the movie does go completely bad, you're at least like, well, at least we got our shark wrangler credited out this out of this whole thing. But there was actually. Um, so the, in Belize, you're sh- we're shooting outside, and the locals uh, who, like, slept on the boat, they were, like, our local fixers and, like, the boat captains and stuff, they'd be like, hey, guys, don't go in the water today. They'd be like, why? And they'd be like, oh, there's just this local tiger shark that kind of does the rounds every now and then. <laughs> and we've apparently he's been spotted in the area. And anyone that actually knows sharks, tiger sharks are, like, the most aggressive of yeah, all the sharks. Sure anything. Are. It's so, yeah, there'd be like every now and then where they'd be like, yeah, just don't go in the water today, please. And we'd be like, okay. <laughs> just another day on set. There's just a tiger yeah. shark in the water. It's fine. So I had to earn my shark wrangler stripes on that movie. Haha, stripes because it's a tiger yeah. shark. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> ultimate. That was an ultimate dad joke. Dude. I love it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned Belize. How, how long did... Where did you fix? I know you split time between Calgary and Belize. How how long did filming take, and how much of it was spent? In the fifteen beautiful... days total was the shoot. Jeez, fifteen yeah. days. Uh, and nine of them were shot in Calgary, Alberta, in the middle of winter, in minus thirty degree temperature, where the closest ocean is three thousand kilometers away. Like or like, you couldn't have picked a worse spot. <laughs> but it made sense because the other option was postponing the movie because Fiji fell through for us. We were originally going to try and shoot the entire movie there, and then the Fijian government turned us down on moral grounds. Moral grounds? Yeah. We didn't realize that they were as religious as they are there, and they really oh. hated the script. Oh, oh interesting. Okay. <laughs> and we were like, why is the Fijian government dictating uh, the film financing that's coming into this country? The whole thing doesn't make sense to me. So... Fuck those guys. <laughs> uh, you heard here, folks. <laughs> yeah. I'll never be able to shoot a movie again there or ever again, ever in there. <laughs> I'll get arrested if I ever travel there. But, um, and then we looked into where they shot Lost in Hawaii, and that oh. also fell through. Uh, and then we were just like, well, the other option is we postpone while we look for a tropical location to shoot the entire movie. Or we build the interior set and just start shooting and hope to God that we find an exterior location. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. And so literally we were built the interior by Tim Rutherford, who built the best interior, most detailed boat set on planet Earth. 
uh, wall and started shooting the interiors before we had found an exterior location or a boat to match it. And then I think halfway through our interior shoot, they found Belize, uh, which was like the perfect location because they have them. The world's now because of Australia's reef break like entirely dying. Australia now has the largest natural reef break, so it keeps the water calm within like a two kilometer radius. You know, oh wow! Yeah, um, cool. And that was wow. that was the making of this weird movie. Cool. <laughs> wow, There's that's... my rant. Sorry, if anyone's going to rant on this podcast, it's going to be me. That's fine. It's <laughs> great. And give superfluous details to questions. No, I love it. Um, so in, when I, when I saw it, like, uh, I mean, I know you, you mentioned that you've, you've read my review, but I, I kind of, and I don't know if this is just me because I'm coming at it from a queer perspective, but there just seemed to be a lot of sexual tension between the two male characters. Mm -hmm. And I, I know a lot of the, the themes, at least from my perspective, was it kind of boiled down to toxic masculinity in a lot mm -hmm. of cases. And I was, I was curious what you what you were exploring in your own words with with that um here's the yeah, first of all i want to go back and say thank you very much for such um uh, a well thought out review you know sometimes you read them you're like i don't know if the, the reviewers considered uh, a lot of the perspectives and they're just given this like face value review uh yeah, most of your review like all of your reviews that i've read and by the way mike peterson also wanted me to give you a great shout out too because everything you do you take such a deep dive where you're considering all the thought processes whether you like the movie or not you're still trying to consider all these things uh and i feel like that's so damn rare in a lot of reviews these days you know so well, thank a you. thank you very much for that um, well, thanks for making it easy with a really good movie. I appreciate that. Um, but here's the interesting part. Like, I always knew that there was going to be a big conversation about, I mean, without trying to do any spoilers, Jonah's basically right. an incel, uh, at least mm. what's the modern version of it. And like, before we were shooting, I would send him screen caps of all these really horrible, I am owed straight white male conversations online <laughs> and i'm like this is your thought process this is your internal thought process through this entire movie um and so like again i had to go down some really weird rabbit holes with that stuff and just going, on watch list now <laughs> yeah i know hey but just going back to like i have i don't know what the best way to say this but like growing up i had a, a lot of very close friends and there'd always be a dis not a discussion this weird joke that it's like and i put this in a previous movie called mon Ami, where it's two really close best friends and people that always make jokes they're like oh are you guys going home tonight together and and i'm always just like it was it's i don't know like for better or worse that just like seeped into my head that there is the discussion that people will assume that there's uh something perhaps more there Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't know whether I was trying to make a comment on that or not, but there definitely seems to be a, like, you know, straight, gay, any of this stuff. There's certain levels of intimacy and I feel like close friends basically reach the same level of intimacy, but just without the sexual gratification right. of it, <laughs> you know, it's like, you still actually know it, their turn ons and turn offs. <laughs> like, right. And uh, to me, like, that's I just it, this kind of was my ult ultimate discussion on close friendships that have probably gone past their point of expiration. Yes. Um, where it's like they do know each other's ultimate secrets, fantasies, 
uh, likes, dislikes and stuff. But it's gone to the point where they should no longer be in that place. And I don't know whether if this answer is making any sense about any of it, but, you know, they, I, I'm, I'm completely 100% okay with everyone thinks that, you know, the ultimate, like you said, I think in your review is the ultimate answer to this would have just been if the two guys had kissed. And I'm, <laughs> it's, it's probably not incorrect, you know? It's like... And so, I mean, I was, I was a little flippant with it, but like, yeah. but I mean, I, there, there comes a point between that it, it, it's, I, I thought they did, well, the thing that I really liked about it was, was the dynamic between the three because, yeah. and again, not getting into spoilers, but they just, everyone, you're kind of, um, you side with different characters as the, as the story goes on. Yeah. And, um, at, at some point it almost felt like, uh, um, gosh, I'm blanking on her name. Um, Emily Tyra Sasha yes, yes that she's kind of pointless in, in it because they're just wanting to one up each other so bad oh yeah in their minds like, sorry I hope she's not pointless in the movie no 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 yeah, absolutely yeah. not no 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 yeah, in yeah. their minds yeah I'm yeah sorry. no 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 yeah that's the, it, it was always meant to be that they are if you think about it if they if, if the audience considers it further they honest to God argue over her as if she's a piece of property yes. without considering her a opinion in the matter yes that was always meant to be in there and now that i've actually clarified the junk that i was just spewing out earlier in my head is uh intimacy makes you vulnerable Mm -hmm. is kind of what i was maybe what subconsciously i'm I'm, i was getting at with the whole thing it's like that can be any kind of intimacy and it's just a problem because vulnerability can be exploited and i feel like these three have gotten to the point that they are completely exploiting that with all three of Right uh, of them, maybe that's I'm trying to make more of a meal out of this t- silly movie than. No, I, I don't, <laughs> but I don't, I don't think, think so. it's so silly. I think there really is something fascinating about like again, not to bring back the Joker, but people are talking about incels so much, and I think that Harpoon is a really interesting look at the way people interact and the way that certain people who are men sometimes like react mm-hmm. to women and how that kind of explodes in a really weird way. And I think it's a really fascinating movie about like intimacy and relationships and what like what friendships can really look like, like the nasty side of friendships. Yeah. And like this has been bothering me recently. And I'm going to just take a deep dive here. And I do check out a lot of memes just because I'm like, you know, meme based and stuff just uh, like as junk food for the brain. But I feel like the current trend is to, you know, it's pretend everything is fine while the world's burning around you type mm-hmm. stuff, you know, and I'm yep. just not convinced that that's a healthy reaction to anything. Like, yeah. no, no one wants to act like they're open, vulnerable, hurt, angry, disgusted. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like everyone wants to pretend that, the, that everything's fine, that everything's rolling off their backs. And yep. I am like the complete opposite as even my first reaction is to be like, I'm devastated right now. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> And I just feel a, I don't know what this has to do with the movie, but that just came to my mind about, yeah, like, uh, there's something about it. And because at Q&As, people are like, are you the most cynical human being on planet Earth? Because these are such awful, awful people. And I'm always like, I'm actually super empathetic. And I want to know why these people turned out this way. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, like, again, no spoilers, but you do a really amazing job of creating these bad people, but talking about their backgrounds and like not necessarily excusing their behavior but going into where their behavior comes from and how it is not just a two-dimensional bad person but it's like an 
inherited, not generational, like an inherited thing that happens to people because of like the way they were raised and their relationships. And it's an important thing to know, to realize, like, it's not, again, it's not excusing behavior, but it's looking at it and where it's coming from. And maybe there's a way we can try to address that in our real lives and let men have emotions and let them express their emotions in better ways. I mean, I was just having a conversation about this the other day about how we don't let men express their emotions in healthy ways. And it's so dumb. I don't understand why. <laughs> and like, cause it's I, not masculine. It's just, dumb. it's so dumb. It's just, it's so dumb. But yeah. I think this movie is a really interesting look at what happens when you don't learn how to express your emotions or when you're beat down by different members of your family or just communicate. Yeah. (laughs) Right. And that's, that's where I was going to go with it because there, a lot of the, 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 uh, drama in the movie comes from the fact that no one wants to really communicate what is going on, what their feelings are, why things are happening. And that's, that's where a lot of the, uh, the conflict comes from. And it, it kind of goes into the, everyone wants to pretend that everything is, is, is good and everything is fine. Mm-hmm. When obviously, as you mentioned, shit ain't fine. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. but yeah, so I, it, and I gotta say that the, the actors do such a fantastic job in this. I mean, oh, so I good. look, Thank when you, I, I rewatched it again last night in, in prep, just Jesus, you did, myself. you did fake blood and this. Yeah. Oh my gosh! I watched so many movies yesterday because of all these podcasts that we're doing. You went, Let me tell you, you were going down a rabbit hole. Yeah, I, I was. We both yes, went but, down a Rob Grant rabbit hole this weekend. We did, and it was wonderful. It was there's cool. no, there's no recovery from that. <laughs> but um, but but yeah, I you you mentioned earlier that Brett Galman is is kind of blowing up, but um, I've also noticed that uh, Monroe is it, Monroe Chambers who plays uh, Jonah. Yeah. He's kind of blowing up too. I mean, I saw him. Just uh, recently in in Riot Girls, mm-hmm. and he just he seems to be everywhere right now. And yeah, the the actors you got are just are they're fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, no, they're um, you know, it's everyone's like, oh, did you have to audition them? And Emily and um, Christopher, I actually didn't. I just was watching past material of theirs, and I found something in their performance that I thought was correct. And then, you know, you talk to them and the, I just keep, I like to tell people, the only thing I'm really interested for is, are you willing to be okay if you look like an idiot? Because this <laughs> is a script where it says like, if we do this wrong, it's going to be really wrong. Well, and I'm, I'm glad you bring that up because it, that I, watching it the second time, it definitely was like, man, there are, there are so many different moments in this that just the wrong thing could just derail this movie. Yeah. And, and somehow between the casting and, and everything, it just, it works so well for mm-hmm. me. Thank you. No, yeah, it's, the conversation is always like, you got to be okay. You got to be okay with this not working because we're, I, like the first person that we sent the script to, a financier, had responded with notes saying this is an unfilmable, unwatchable movie. Nothing happens. And it's a stupid movie on a boat. Was literally his verbatim response to us. <laughs> <laughs> and thank gosh for Mike being like, I think you're completely incorrect. Uh, I think all the things that you think is a negative is what's going to make this movie stand out if we do it correctly. Um, right. And that's the thing is, you know, Emily, Chris and Monroe were not afraid to look stupid. And I think yeah. that's the biggest important element to this because, again, it comes back to, uh, you know, vulnerability. That's really all I'm looking for. Yeah. <laughs> You're making me take a deep dive into what the hell I, my life's all about here. Yes. 
It could be this. It could be the scotch that I've now switched to gin and tonic. But ooh, ooh. Nice. Yeah, yeah. I um, do not have the fear anymore. I now I'm feeling okay. <laughs> well, that feels like a really good note to end on about harpoon. Um, and we kind of want to, you know, besides harpoon, we want to talk about what we've all been watching recently before moving into yet the film you've brought to us, Rob. So Terry, what have you been watching recently? Um. So. I, I, I kind of like to uh, identify movies that people should be keeping on their their uh, their watch list eventually. And um, I talked about it earlier, but but Spiral is a movie that has I, I just I keep thinking about it. I saw it a few weeks ago, um, about a month ago now I think. But like I I can't stop thinking about it. It's it's um again he's he's Canadian Curtis. Uh, Harder, uh, Curtis David, David Harder, Curtis David. My he bad. wants he wants to do the full Paul Thomas Anderson, Ooh. and I'm gonna make I'm gonna make fun of him to the day I die. Perfect. <laughs> but it, it's a it's um a story about uh, two gay men in the 1990, 1995, mm-hmm. uh, trying to raise this this new kind of idea of a family in a town that might have sinister purposes behind it and it, it it really surprised me um just how how good it was i mean i, I guess it shouldn't surprise me because i know colin Miniham he wrote what keeps you alive and that mm-hmm. was such a, a great queer horror story as well mm-hmm. but it just it it surprised me nice that's awesome can i i'm gonna just interrupt for a second i got two parts to this sorry i want to go back because i never answered about monroe poor monroe I love that. I love that. I love that man to death. I don't know if you can edit this to be back when I actually was supposed to answer your question. <laughs> but I had edited Knuckleball, uh, and yes. he was the villain in that. He and was, so yeah. I was super reluctant to consider him for Jonah. Like, didn't want to even consider. Him. I'm like, no, it's like it doesn't make sense to me. The character he played, I like, I that was my opinion of him just from editing the movie without having meet, met him in person and just knowing the dailies. And it was Mike. that's like, you have to see him for this role. And Mike went behind my back, had Monroe record a scene uh, and send it to me. And I was like, you son of a bitch. And then I watched it and then I went, you son of a bitch. He's perfect. Uh, And then that's, that man, literally that character is the linchpin to the movie and I'm not sure anyone else would have been able to pull it off in the way that he did. And I'm such committed. Again, I'm going to go back to vulnerable seems to be the topic of conversation today. (laughs) I don't know if anyone else could have done that. So somehow find a way to push that back earlier in this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) And then part two is, yeah, I want to ask you about like spiral. You know, I was there the whole uh, time during the editing process with Kurt going back and forth with ideas. And I kept being like nervous about, uh, you know, giving notes. I was like, this is a, you know, a queer perspective horror movie. I was like, I'm a straight, I'm like, should I be, how, how much details can I give in that? I just love to hear your opinion on how you think about how that works with that whole thing. And this doesn't have to be part of the podcast. This is just generally me asking, asking how you feel about uh, in a, a non-queer person giving, making that movie from a queer perspective. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, yeah. It, it totally does. And um, it's, it's, it's kind of a, a complicated question to answer. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's it's one of those things where it's like I I I get afraid when when I see people like that aren't for instance trans playing trans roles uh-huh. um, and I it makes me sad that there's not a lot of um, LGBT um, people in behind and in front of the camera so like mm-hmm. on that aspect it, it concerns me but at the end of the day I just want a, I want a good movie and yeah. I feel that 
because um, I, I was like, I don't, I don't know who these people are. I mean, I, yeah. I know that they make movies. I don't know what their sexual identity is. Yeah. And at the end of the day, you're just sort of making, a, you're making a story. And it, to me, it doesn't matter if the characters are straight or queer. It's, yeah. Are you make, are you telling a good story? And yeah. that, and I think, I think it was a smart casting choice to pick Jeffrey mm-hmm. for the, the one of the leads because he's he was fantastic in um unreal he's probably one of the only reasons i kept watching all mm-hmm. three seasons <laughs> um so i mean i i guess i i don't know i'm kind of rambling i, I no, don't know no 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 this is this is just that. me genuinely wanting to talk about yeah. this stuff because I, emily had a conversation with me and sorry if i'm cutting you off from your train of no. thought but emily had a conversation with me where she was like it, was, it ended up being the point when i was like i have this really cool uh, idea for uh, like uh, I, I'm trying to pitch it best but it's like I was like I'm at a point it feels like we're at an industry at a point where it's like I as a straight white male probably shouldn't tell a story from a female perspective like a strictly female perspective you know like what I mean like there's just this weird thing where I was like am I going to get in trouble for this we were in the edit when we were in the editing process for Harpoon um, a- conversations came up a ton where they were like you know this these two guys are treating this woman like a piece of property. Are you prepared to answer for that? And I was like, absolutely, because mm-hmm. I feel like it's coming from a, uh, I'm trying to say something about that and stuff. But it's like, it, I find it interesting that we've got to be more prepared for um, those questions. It's just, you know, I, I like I said, I'm a very sensitive person. And it's just, mm-hmm. the whole thing is kind of feels like you got to be a little careful about where you're at right now. But as oh. if you're right, I like I like that as long as it's, as long as the, it works, you're fine. If this movie sucks, then you got more to answer for. It seems like right. I mean, I mean, I obviously I can't speak for everyone yeah. watching movies, right? All, yeah. all queer people, but like, yeah. I, I think the problem isn't necessarily individual mm-hmm. um, people making movies. It's it's kind of the the system as a whole, kind mm-hmm. of pushes those uh, minority uh, perspectives into the the. The, the, cl- the closet and into the corners you know or cliched so, i guess is right it? i i didn't i what i i was hmm, so sorry i, I, was I like really it kinda... I, I like it i'm making the tough questions here i'm turning this thing right around <laughs> i know this isn't fair yes <laughs> we haven't even gotten to uh indiana jones yet that's fine um, <laughs> i warned you guys i'd go on i'd take you no, down I a rabbit it. hole i love it no but i i guess um what I was kind of worried going into Spiral, even though I, I, what what keeps you what keeps you alive was was one of my favorite movies last year. It ended up on my top ten list. Mm-hmm. But it it kind of I'm always concerned when I find, um, and I and I, I think I'm pretty sure Colin is, is straight. I mean, I, I know he has a his a girlfriend or wife is is in the movie. Mm-hmm. So I. I'm always concerned when when it's coming from that perspective, but this, but Spiral and What Keeps You Alive both felt very genuine and mm-hmm. from a place of of, of actual um, consideration. Gosh. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Thank you. So I, I I think that goes a long way in dispelling my, my concerns because yeah, I, I I want there to be more queer horror. I think I mm-hmm. I really. Just like I want to see more POC horror, I want to see more trans. I want to see more, my, more minorities. And yes, that that does mean I, I want to see less of the the straight white man. But mm-hmm. I, I think I think Spiral and What Keeps You Alive shows that you can create it if it's coming from a place of of genuine consideration. Yeah, and I agree with that. So I have a, I loved What Keeps You Alive as well, and I was actually surprised to find out that Colin Minahan was just like 
cis white guy because I guess I'm so used to, unfortunately, a lot of straight white men creating films like, and using gay characters as stereotypes, as a joke. I'm not really creating two-dimensional Sidekicks. Yeah, and so I think there is a big change now in creating these narratives about, you know, you can make a kind of slasher-esque movie with a lesbian couple. Like, mm-hmm. it doesn't change the movie. Yeah. It changed, I mean, it changes the movie a little bit, but you can still make something scary with those kinds of characters. And I think these movies are showing, like, as long as you're not an asshole and that you're having, you have this consideration, you can mm-hmm. create these movies. And I think there needs to be, I think there just needs to be an overall shift in the kinds of films that are made and the kinds of voices that are heard. Um, yeah. And it's something I do think about a lot, especially with, like, lesbian cinema and with mm-hmm. trans cinema. And I think there is a really big shift happening. And, I think as long as I don't think I think that just needs to be more prioritizing like women directors and queer directors not necessarily saying that like straight white men can't make movies but obviously not I just Mm -hmm. think the same opportunities need to be afforded to Mm -hmm. everyone yeah which I think is like which is I think fortunately happening more and more yeah no, yeah, it's the, and that's the thing. Like that, the only reason I'm asking is like because of coming from the straight white male side. It's like, okay, mm-hmm. where do I, and it's not that I need to carve out my own thing. Yeah, it's, I, I'm definitely aware and cognizant. I want to make sure that the support is happening for the things. And it's like I just that's why I like asking these questions because yeah. I want to make sure that I'm not fucking it up. <laughs> I think, and like, like I, I mean, I mentioned this already, but I, I think hiring like Jeffrey to be in it is, is a, is a good step forward. And I, it just, yeah, I, yeah. More representation. You even even asking these questions means that you care. I mean, Mm -hmm. a lot of people don't. And I think just the fact that you're willing to have the discussion and bring it up is, is a, is a great thing. Well, we we, we had to do like a, a ton of like not soul searching is the wrong thing, but we had to have some like internal discussions of like, okay, we got, three straight white people on a boat trapped here like mm-hmm. talking about their bullshit and luckily our answer was always but yeah like privilege is part of the problem here yeah exactly was, like part of the <laughs> discussion that we were trying to say but yeah we like whereas maybe back in my younger years I, it's like that's not even a discussion that i would have considered or questioned on my part before we release a movie is at least i think it's probably good Hopefully, not that I'm trying to give myself a pat on the back, but we are we are trying to make sure that this is a discussion that we're prepared to have. It's kind of like the place I'm ended up because I can't change much else than that. But right. <laughs> but uh, what about you, Mary Beth? What have you been watching recently? Um, so Sorry, there's... I took us down such a deep dive. Oh my board. god! Don't apologize. <laughs> we don't love apologize it. Like for any of it. this podcast has like a little tiny bit of a structure, but like then we go down rabbit holes, and it's great. Um, yeah, as long as as long as you're here for it, we're here. for Exactly. It. Yes. Um, so there's two things I've seen recently. Um, one's an anime film called Promar. It's not necessarily horror, but it's by the people who made um, Kill La Kill and Gurren Lagann. Oh yeah, and... I remember you t- talking about this offline. Oh god, it's so good. It's like about. Uh, sci-fi firefighters and weird fire people and it is like just absolutely batshit crazy anime and it is very good it had a very short theatrical run but i really hope people seek it out if especially if they love animation and weird animation sorry what was this one called again promar promar um i'm googling this now um yeah p-r-o-m-a-r-e it's very good it's beautifully animated it's like absolutely bananagrams um so I saw that in theaters, and I think it's great. But another one that's more horror, horror, horror Jesus, horror oriented is called Coco di Coco da. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, yeah. Um, this has been playing the festival circuit. It most recently premiered at, uh, well, screened at Fantastic Fest. It's going to Brooklyn Horror Festival um, in October. And it's gotten kind of mixed reviews. It's um, yeah. by Johannes Nyholm. Um, and it's very bizarre. And I really enjoyed it. Um, it's basically about a couple who are grieving over the death of their daughter and they get trapped in this awful time loop that is perpetuated by these three kind of horrific, horrific fairy tale characters. And they are just like, they torture this couple over and over in, in repetitive, but horrible ways. And I really oh enjoyed God. it. I know some people didn't, but I thought it was really well done. So. I'm sorry. I'm going to ask again. Cause I was looking at, Premiere. Yeah. What was the question? Or what was the it, name of this one? It's called Coco D. Coco Da. Coco D. This is it's like this is the K O K O D I and then K O K O D A. Right. Yes. You're you're picking stuff that's hard to search. I know. <laughs> I'm picking like the international heart. I'm a big like international horror fan. Oh my so gosh! The cover, the poster is a white cat in a bow tie this yep. is now my new favorite movie it's fast it's a fascinating it's film bizarre. if you get a chance to see it did you see it yet terry yes i i, I saw it and i i i'm supposed to be writing a review for it but i don't know what to say about yeah it's, <laughs> i wrote a review for it and it is hard because again like you don't want to spoil anything it's one of those movies that you have to kind of experience and it's hard to kind of capture yeah. that experience in words but i will i ha- there are like it's not a perfect movie but I think there's a lot of really interesting ways of how it captures grief. And I know horror and grief is like a big thing. And it mm-hmm. is a very interesting, unique way of taking those two very like associated things and making it into something very weird and kind of like you want it to end. But it like not in a bad way. Just in like, <laughs> a, oh my God, these people are going through such horrible stuff. I just need it to be over. Nice. It's definitely one of those movies that's going to be someone's favorite movie of the year. Uh, it's, yeah. it's 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 very divisive. Um, I've noticed, but it's um, it's very odd. You have to be you have to give yourself to it and just allow it to take you on its ride. And if you if you don't, then you might not like it. You're but in it's, big it, trouble. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, I'm 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 glad you brought that one up because uh, I, I definitely I think I think I think someone it will be someone's favorite movie this year. Yeah. And Rob, are you watch have you seen anything recently that you want to talk about? Specifically horror? Um, <laughs> oh no, anything. No, anything general. really. Okay. Uh I uh, going back to like how I've been bitter and jaded this past year, if anyone can't tell <laughs> via this podcast. <laughs> um I was recently trying to be like I need to recapture my like love for Mumblecore. Oh yeah. <gasps> Oh my god, tell me more. I'm writing an entire column about mumble gore, so I want to hear Ooh, what you're thinking. Yeah. One, and then let's put that on pause because I need to know what mumble gore is. Yes. But, um, it, uh, uh, sort of Trust by Lynn Shelton. I just watched, and it went completely under the radar, I believe. Sort of Trust. I'm about to write this one. So down. it's got, yeah, it's got Mark Maron. Oh. It, oh, Lynch, Sword of Trust. Oh, wow. I'm sorry. Yeah. Sword of Trust. Yes, yeah. I've heard such good things about this. So, Lynn Shelton made a movie a couple years back called Your Sister's Sister that's like one of my favorite movies. <gasps> I love Your Sister's Sister. Of all time, and I think it's also, um, gosh darn it, now I'm not doing names correctly. Emily Blunt's like best roles. I think it's the Duplass, one of the Mark Duplass and Rosemary Duplass. Like, it's just like three people, again, a chamber drama. Uh, talking about real stuff, but yeah, I've decided I'm gonna try and fall back and look because that's the kind of stuff that I in my head I was like, I want that, but with violence. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so yeah, I'm gonna put sort of trust as my 
my return to trying to get back into the mum- mumblecore situation. Cool. So mumblecore is basically mumblecore but horror. Yeah. So I've been, um, for Nightmare on Film Street, I've been doing a column called Defining Mumblegore and looking at films that are within that subgenre, but kind of like expanding it. So I did Creep, the Mark Duplass found footage film. Mm-hmm. Um, Lace Crater. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we are, um, are We Not Cats? I was going to ask if you had talked about Are We Not Cats. Yeah. So they're all like, Are We Not Cats? And then the, recently, the one that came out recently is called The Transfiguration, which is a vampire movie, mm-hmm. um, kind of a vampire movie. And so basically, it's like low budget horror movies that aren't, that are horrifying, but they're also very emotional and they don't have high budgets. So it's very like introspective with horrifying elements. And so the next one I'm going to do, um, get exclusive here um is um splinter and talking about horror like how splinter can be a mumblegore movie um even though it's got more it's got obviously more practical effects and gore in it but talking about how these low budget kind of more introspective films yeah are a a really important subgenre that people don't really talk about yeah yeah that's kind of where i'm at right now with all that i keep saving all these to rewatch because it's fine. Like, here's the worst decision I ever made in my life was going into the film industry because now when I watch movies, it feels like work. Yeah. It definitely <laughs> so, it feels like it. work for I us, too, feeling. I think, because I yeah. always feel like if I'm not reviewing it, I feel like I should be reviewing a movie. Yeah. And I come at it from a very, like, analytical perspective, and I have a hard time turning my brain off. I know. It's crazy. And that's why I've gone to video games recently because I know, like, my brain actually does shut off, at least. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I've been but playing if- a lot of um, Fire Emblem, so that's been helpful. Nice, but yeah, it's like <laughs> I'm trying to like your guys are saying movies that are like in my brain. I'm like, I, shame on you, Rob. I should have watched all these movies recently. Shame on you. So now I'm, but I am trying to get back to that point where I'm like, because I used to watch like Hannah takes like Hannah takes the stairs. Like no one should be watching that movie unless you're just absolutely deeply in love with movies. Like same with Mutually Appreciation. Like all these classic mumblecore movies. It's like, they're not even movies. It's just like these slices of life. And I'm like, I need to get back to a point where like, I woke up looking forward to watching this stuff. <laughs> yeah. And I'm just, you're getting the honest Rob here. I'll tell you what. I love it. I love it. I love <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. So, um, but enough with the past though. What, what movie did you bring with us today, Rob, since we're finally getting to that? S- speaking of the past. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> In, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Was All right. out of if, like so the pitch that I got was what was a scene that really traumatized you as a child, and for some reason none of the scenes that came to my brain were from horror movies, and I don't know we can get into that but anyway the one that I picked was Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade because it's the only one I remember as a little kid that I would run out of the room specifically for that scene every time I knew that it was about to happen. Um, so before we get into your <laughs> before we get into your scene, um, let's give and in case you are like uh, someone who lives under a rock, mm-hmm. let's give a little bit of a, a background on Indiana Jones. And so there's the this guy scene. named Steven Spielberg. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I wrote um, uh, kind of like a little synopsis to uh, to kind of get our listeners who might not have seen it or might I don't know how you couldn't have or yeah. haven't seen it in a while. So it's directed by Steven Spielberg by a script by Jeffrey Bohm. Indiana Jones is back on a new adventure to stay ahead of the Nazis while destroying the world's ancient places, one library floor at a time. <laughs> nice. After an opening that introduces young Indy, poor River Phoenix, 
Uh, yeah, he was a, he was a, a school crush for me. Um, and establishes I think he was Indiana's, for everything, for everything, right? <laughs> and establishes Indiana's quirks, hat, newfound fear of snakes, and whip. We meet up with 1938's Indy, now a teacher who gets drafted by Walter Donovan to locate his missing father, Henry Senior, played by Sean Connery, in such a fantastic role. Um, Senior was in Venice, Italy with Dr. Elsa Schneider when he vanished searching for the Holy Grail. Together, Indy and Elsa find a tomb underneath the ancient library that houses the Knight of the Crusade, whose shield completes an inscription that will lead to the Grail's location. And then they discover that Senior is being kept in a Nazi castle. Indy rushes to the castle, finding time to make whoopee with Elsa (laughs) along the way. Yep. He finds his father, finds time to get in an argument with his dad, is found by the Nazis. Basically, there's a lot of finding going on. Nazis are killed. Indy gets betrayed not only by femme fatale Elsa, but also Donovan. And then we're off from action-filled set piece after action-filled set piece. Along the way, we deal with family trauma, visit a Nazi book burning, get Hitler's autograph, ride a blimp, dodge Nazi bombs, weaponize a flock of seagulls, and get in a horse-on-tank battle as the Joneses try to stop the armies of darkness from marching across the earth. Finally finding the tomb where the grail is kept, Donovan shoots Senior to force Cindy to help them get through the booby traps and trials. We learn that being humble involves rolling, that Jehovah in Latin begins with an I, discover the importance of architectural perspective, and that Jesus would drink from a ceramic cup. <laughs> Donovan dies in spectacular fashion, Elsa falls to her doom, Indy saves his father, and the heroes ride off into the sunset. Nice. <laughs> so there we go. That's <laughs> a gigantic spoiler for anyone that hasn't seen this movie. Shame on you. At this point, I know. if you haven't seen it, though, like, I yeah. don't know what you were expecting. I know. <laughs> yeah. um, so, Rob, how old were you when you first saw Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade? Let's see. When the hell did this come out? I have it on my screen here. I think it's 89. Is so, that right? Yeah. So this is the first Indiana Jones movie that I saw. Oh, wow. Okay, cool. Sorry this to was my, or the this end. This was my introduction. And then I went backwards. It's still my favorite one. Okay. I agree with you there. And it turns out to be Spielberg's favorite one as well. Oh, Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. um, Here's my favorite part. It's just a segue here. The biggest and best inside joke of all time is that James Bond is Indiana Jones' father. Right? (laughs) Right. Like that is the best inside joke of all time. So we watched it yesterday, me and Chloe. She had never seen it. She's never seen Indiana Jones. Wow. And I was like, in my head, I'm like, how like how lucky you are that this is the first time you get to see this. <laughs> but she loved it. Good. Also, surprised at how funny it was. Right? It's very funny. I watched it super, I had, I, you know, we watched these with this podcast, but it, we had watched it in my apartment just like randomly one night on Netflix. And I forgot how much, how much fun it really oh, is. Oh my gosh. The scene, uh, speaking, going back to Hitler's autograph, she's like, no, they didn't just do that. They didn't just do that, did they? And I was like, oh, they did that. I was surprised that, because when I saw it back in, well, probably 89 or 90, when I when I saw it the first time, I didn't really, you know, Nazis, they didn't really mean anything to me. They're just the bad guys, right? I was surprised at how much there is, how many, how prolific Nazis are in this movie. Yeah, well, this and the first one, right? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's and we were after the autograph scene. I was like, would someone get in trouble for shooting this now? Right. And the answer is probably yes. But then we're like, but the guy who made this is Jewish and made Hitler's uh, or Schindler's List, and it's like, yeah. it's it's like there's an element of comedy in tragedy that seems to be lost recently. <laughs> right. It opened up a big can of worms discussing with us. <laughs> 
I can imagine. Yeah. What What was the scene that scared you the most when you saw this as a kid? Okay, uh, I'm going to look up what the heck is the character's name. Donovan. Walter Donovan. They end up in the room with the last knight who's been alive for 700 years protecting the Holy Grail. And Walter Donovan has to choose from these multitudes of grails. And if you choose incorrectly, I think his quote was, you choose wisely, uh, the cup gives you life. You choose incorrectly, that takes it from you. Mm-hmm. And then I only think just in this viewing did I get the sense that Elsa purposely picked the incorrect cup yes, for him yes thank you i picked that up for the first time too yeah and so i was like oh cheeky i like it um so anyway he picked this like really gold amazing beautiful chalice where walter donovan said it truly is the cup for the king of kings drank from the water and then i would run out of the room up the <laughs> stairs two flights of stairs and listen while Walter Donovan's face slowly deteriorated until he was a pile of dust. Now, the funny thing was, though, about this, and this is in hindsight because I was at, like, I watched this again yesterday to give me a refresher. The um, score through this entire movie actually takes a lot more nods into, like, horror or tension-filled elements than I remember. Like, even in the opening when it's, like, a young River Phoenix it's like yeah. those weird There's tense of, strings. Yeah, it's a lot of flourishes that that definitely feel and, from and yeah, and and then and then of course it goes into the dun da da da, and then you're like, whoa, mm-hmm. this thing's changing. This thing was way ahead of its time. It's sh- shifting genres like I like to think that Monami did, or sorry, uh, Harpoon <laughs> did. But it's like <laughs> it was a really interesting revisit for me. But anyway, yeah, the scare, scene that scared the absolute piss out of me was Walter Donovan becoming an old man, like. I think only in this viewing did I realize that he's not just getting turned into like a, I probably when I was little just thought that he was turning into a zombie or something. Yeah. But now I'm realizing it's advancing his age at a rapid speed because the opposite is the fountain of youth. And I'm Mm -hmm. like, you you clever bastards is basically what I'm thinking now. (laughs) Yeah. It's, I, it, watching this, Again, because uh, it's probably been about 15 years since I've seen this movie, if, if not longer. Yeah. Um, it, it surprised me how how dark the uh, the, the tomb is. Yeah. You, know, you have like the, the slashing blades and yeah. you know, beheading people. It's bloodless, but you have you have all that kind of stuff. And then it ends with with his spectacular. I mean, it's a great death sequence of, of him. Aging, yeah. Like, it's just, it's amazing. Yeah. No, that was a, yeah, I don't know why. I don't know how, like now I'm, the funny thing is like I showed it to Chloe, who, anyone who's just decided to watch this podcast now, shame on you, <laughs> is my long-term partner, is we, she's watching every now and then she'd keep going, was this the scene? Was this the scene? Oh, so you didn't tell her beforehand? <laughs> no, I didn't tell her. Um, which is interesting because it has a lot of crazy, scary moments, like the rats, uh, the tombed rats mm-hmm. and stuff, the snake, even the opening with River Phoenix where he falls into the snake pits and stuff. Yeah. I had forgot but, how long the intro was even oh, like with the River it, Phoenix part. I completely it, forgotten that part. It's the only time that I'll ever be like, thank you for that backstory. Right. right? <laughs> exactly. Um, well, and and it, it goes to how um, Steven Spielberg is really good at, at at hitting plot in such an efficient way. 
And and that's what I liked about that opening because it's like it, it was a fun opening, but then it also gives us the hat. It gives us you know his fear of snakes, the whip, like all of these kind of character moments. It does it in such a, a quick succession. It gives us the Harrison Ford impersonator. Like, yes, <laughs> there's so many things. But I, going back to it, I was watching it being like this movie is crossing genres left, right, and center. And this is in 1989, and I'm like, why isn't this happening more now? But you know, actually. I'm going to segue again. I was watching it and being like, I feel like the Marvel, like Marvel movies were taking a ton from this because every now and then they'd have these like quippy conversations. And I'm like, gosh, darn it. Spielberg was way, way ahead of the game. Yes, absolutely. And I also started to realize um, watching this, just how complicit he is in a generation's kinder trauma. Cause like on, <laughs> on Mary Beth and I, when we recorded our first episode, we talked about arachnophobia that he's a producer on. And we talked about poltergeist that he wrote. Cause those are two films that scarred us for life. That was almost and, one that I picked. Oh really? Which yeah. one? Poltergeist? <laughs> yeah. The, the kid getting eaten by the tree. Yep. See, I, I that part see didn't that. scare me as a kid. It was the goddamn end of the whole you're, movie. This you're not me. thinking about being digested by a tree. Good God, no! Now I am. Oh God, <laughs> my, my my brain didn't go there as a child, but it's yeah. going there as an adult, and it's horrible. And so then we, we we talked about those two, and we're talking about Last Crusade now, and we're also scheduled to talk very soon about Jaws. Yeah. So it's like he he definitely hit hit the nail in terms of like imagery. That uh, that left a lasting impression on people. Yeah, and I never think of him as a horror director, but now no. I'm like, wait, maybe he is a horror. He like, I mean, even if he I doesn't think direct, he's just an, sorry, I think he just is an emotional, like manipulate, not in a bad way, but he knows how to get to the emotions. He really does. Right. He knows how to like really get you scared, and he like his jaws. Even like a lot of it isn't necessarily scary, but it's like the tension and like the kind of the dread of that he's really good at tapping into those kind of deep visceral emotions and even if he's not directing he puts himself behind these really emotional projects i mean go back to duel though he made a truck scary that's true oh my god i forgot yeah. about that movie i've actually never seen that one. Oh my gosh i should have picked duel <laughs> <laughs> you literally it's it's Jaws before Jaws is a good way of putting it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I the, will add it to my list. The to watch. truck is a relentless monster, and the fact huh. that a twenty, like a twenty-year-old, made a TV movie this freaking good makes you just go like, it, it just makes me be like, why bother? Why try? That's just <laughs> um, like, yeah. It's like that's the high water mark. It's not going to get hit again. <laughs> and so we kind of touched on it a little bit, but what do you think of? That scene in The Last Crusade now as an adult, I mean, watching it with your partner for the, and, I mean, getting to watch your partner watch it for the first time. Chloe! <laughs> <laughs> Thoughts on Indiana Jones? Last Crusade? Very, very good. Very, very good. Very, very good. But that scene's, <laughs> I just wanted to get her to yell from across the room. <laughs> <laughs> Anything I can do to just shake the foundations of our structure. I, I love it. <laughs> it's my favorite thing on planet Earth. She's now eating like tuna fish or something in the kitchen and hiding. <laughs> but what, what about you, Mary? When did you see this movie? Is it, was this? Did you see it as a kid or? 
I can't even remember the first time I saw this movie. So I saw, yeah. I think I saw the Temple of Doom, and that scarred me more than yeah, anything. Yeah, that that's technically because, the scariest. Yeah. That is the or scariest one, one, obviously, because yeah. you see a guy rip a, you know, rip a heart out of someone, and there's oh, just like catches my, fire. Yeah, you know, and like <laughs> chilled monkey brains, and like all of that stuff. So I think I was a little bit scarred um, on the Indiana Jones front. So I think I <laughs> was very reluctant to watch. Last Crusade, and I really can't remember watching it all the way through. I think I saw lots of like snippets, and it, the, what stuck out the most to me as a kid was the scene where they're on the blimp. Um, and that scene I always remembered, but I because I rewatched this so recently, I, I felt like I hadn't actually ever seen The Last Crusade all the way through, which I don't think is true, but I think because I was so scared by the Temple of Doom, it, every other memory of Indiana Jones was erased until I saw the Crystal Skull. Which part of the blimp were, uh, like, were, was the... I think it was part. just, like, the whole interaction on the blimp. I think it, I thought it was so, like, beautifully shot and kind of scripted and written. Yeah. For some reason, that whole part, especially when he said um, he didn't have his ticket. No ticket. And no ticket. Oh, yes. And then everyone started, like, yeah. waving their tickets. I thought that was so funny. And I guess that just, for some reason, stuck in my head throughout my entire childhood until now that was the my favorite part and i don't know really understand why but yeah he also highlights uh daddy issues like really well yes he sure does like really yeah. well like just the entire movie you're kind of laughing but also sad that indiana cannot get his father's approval like the entire movie right it, that's that's something I, I took a note about is when he's escaping and they're escaping on the jeep and <laughs> you know and and indy is all excited about hey look at that yeah. we just escaped that and and senior is just standing sitting there in the oh, thing like so oh, whatever disapproving just, yeah right i'm so bored with this <laughs> look what you did i can't believe what you did actually you want to know what had us like in stitches what? is how did you know she was a nazi she talks in her sleep yes oh, oh my, my god, god i forgot that about moment. that part. yes we were like in stitches <laughs> because Harrison Ford gives him a look and then Sean Connery returns the look back. <laughs> and like as a kid, there's no way that I picked up. I'm like, oh, they both shagged the same woman. No way. No. And then now as an adult, I'm like, that is specifically for the parents taking their kids to see yep. this movie. Mm-hmm. I think and what great casting. Yeah. For And then I think the other favorite part was that um, – the whole like tank horse riding scene when they like I didn't when he's his dad's like I didn't even get to tell him everything and then he just Indy walks up behind him and is like hey exhausted exhausted <laughs> covered in dirt shirt just, open like, yeah complete and every he's like yeah. what are you guys looking at I don't know like yeah. those kinds of weirdly comical moments stuck no, out in my head a lot. Um, no I think I was yelling at Chloe at that point I'm like I the biggest man crush on this guy just look how cool <laughs> look how cool he is. Look how he really cool. is he, so cool. He just saved everyone, and he's just tired. <laughs> he's just tired, yeah. covered in dirt. It's great. Yeah. No. Yeah. That. It, that's the kind of stuff. And like, thank gosh for this podcast because it made me rewatch them. But like, this is the type of shit that like going beyond the scary scene. I was telling Chloe, I'm like, I actually see. I'm like, Jesus, I re- formulated a lot of my personality in the way that I am based on this. Like, I love. Uh, weathered leather jackets like i have a i have a satchel that's like you know made out of or looks like that and it's just you don't realize the effect this stuff has on you as an adult i suppose is there is there ones that you guys have that's like oh in hindsight it's like oh shit this really aside from the horror i've turned just left a lasting 
imprint is a good question, I guess. Juno for me. Nice. So um, you like a lot of orange and white stripes. Yeah. For sure. No, it, it just like it formed my sense of humor and my sarcasm um, as a kid. I love that movie so much. And I think I revisited it. I revisited it, 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 it recently. And it's just really has shaped like it taught me it was okay to be a weirdo and oh, to kind yeah. of lean mm-hmm. into being a weirdo. And, yeah. you know, she loves horror movies and Wizard of Gore. And, you know, it just was a film that really definitely shaped the way that I view things and, like, kind of how goofy I can be. That definitely is it, I think. That's cool. What about you, Terry? I, I think it's kind of a cop-out, but Rocky Horror Picture Show. That's not a cop-out. Well, it's a horror movie, sort of. Eh. I mean, it's in it's a genre. It doesn't matter but, what genre, I, guess, I suppose. <laughs> but I, for for me, it was the first time that I I saw non-straight people in movies, mm. and um, it it kind of like you 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 were talking about Mary Beth. It kind of said, "Oh, I can I can be a little weird." Yeah, I can because here's Tim Curry just hamming it up and letting it rip right and <laughs> so, <it> rip. <laughs> that that movie was it was big for me uh growing up when i saw it i think i was early teens um maybe just become a teenager at that point um and it, it definitely was it, it, it opened my eyes that there was more than just this the straight world out there yeah mm-hmm. it's interesting that both of yours were like yeah it's like outsider outsider movies basically mm-hmm and it's like it's funny and this maybe this goes back to not because the second you guys both said this it was made me think going to the new joker and again how this might influence people's it's like i guess it can go both ways positive and negative yeah yeah and i feel like my association with a lot of movies has just been like telling me it's okay to be a little bit of a weirdo and it's okay to like the weird things that you like mm-hmm. you will find your your group of people and that like there are people out there that kind of think like you and it's not a bad thing even though kids at school might make, might make you feel that way. Oh yeah. For sure like now that I'm thinking about this movie that did that to me was actually not a movie movie but it was a skateboard movie and it was the CKY2K movies. Oh cool. With Bam Margera. Yeah. Uh-huh. And yeah. I was like, man, these guys give no fucks like My little <laughs> so, brother found that. Like not the same thing but he watched found a lot of like skating videos on YouTube and was like, "Oh cool, like it is cool to be a skater kid." Yeah, and he's it was a little my culture. He's yeah. a little skate punk, but yeah, I love him, but yeah, that's I was that him. until I realized I couldn't fall onto concrete as hard. Yeah, anymore. yeah, um, yeah. Wow, you made us go deep today, Rob. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All you need to ask is ask questions, and then you usually get good questions or good get good good answers. This, this is the fun stuff for me. Yeah, it was a, it's a it was an interesting rewatch to just be like, oh shit, this is like. I, pure cinema is the wrong word. That sounds very pretentious, but it was like it, it kind of ticks all the boxes of that classic like four quadrant filmmaking thing, which I hate, hate, mm-hmm. hate yeah. more than anything. But Spielberg seems to have done it in a way that you don't realize. <laughs> well, and it also kind of reminded me how um, fake feeling a lot of modern day blockbusters feel. I mean, like there's so much. There's so many stunts and there's so many like real components to that filmmaking. That oh my just, gosh! Yes, I just I I loved I loved seeing it again. It felt like it felt like coming home. You know what's crazy is now that you've mentioned that, that's reminded me. I was watching that and I had just watched John Wick three, 
not and I'm not shitting on John Wick three because I was laughing mm-hmm. my ass off through that whole thing. I thought the knife fight was ridiculous and awesome. I had never it seen was. that before. But then it made me be like, why does that feel so much less personal? Like Indiana Jones, like regardless of all this crazy action, you actually care and feel about the relationships in it. And I was like, that may be what's been lost is now we're into the spectacle, but without the emotional connection to it is right. kind of where I landed. And maybe that's just the pretentious film school person that I'm trying to get away from, from 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Now. <laughs> but yeah, uh, no, I, I think you hit that. the nail on the head. There's, there's, I, I, I enjoyed watching John Wick three, mm-hmm. but um, I've never been a huge, a huge fan of it, of that, yeah. uh, that series, just because it, it kind of felt like, I was watching a video game. I mean, you know, yeah. I, and, and not like, I, I love video games. I'm a huge gamer. I've been since, you know, yeah. Nintendo age, but um, it just, it, it felt like kind of going back to what you were saying, Rob, that there's, there is no real connection there. It's just, here's another faceless guy getting stabbed or shot yeah. or, and so, and even towards the end, it was just, I was like, I didn't even care about John Wick's safety. Yeah, either. yeah, I know. So I, I, I think there is something that is kind of lost in a lot of ways. Well, that's the scene on the bikes where he keeps taking people out and then turning to his dad for his approval. That's the mm-hmm. important part of the scene. Yes. Not how he killed all these people. Right, exactly. And I, it's it's sort of like even with the, the, the scene I kind of made a joke about where the dad weaponizes the seagulls. I yeah. mean, it, it's not so much that the plane exploded or that the seagulls were used. It's it's his mannerism afterwards of like, see, I can do it too. Yeah. And, and there's also that kind of like, see, maybe he was paying attention because he is he's doing the same kind of thing that Indiana would do. Yeah. Right. So there's like, I don't know. It's weird. And then the scene actually that actually not disturbed me, but made me be like, Whoa, uh, when he first like kicks in and then, uh, Dr. Jones senior is like, you wouldn't have brought your diary here. You did. You did. Right. Don't call me junior takes the guy's semi-automatic machine gun and just mows down three people. And this is a children's movie. Yeah. Need I remind exactly. you? Exactly. Right. <laughs> And then the dad's like, look what you did. Look what you did. You you killed them. I can't believe what you just did. <laughs> and I'm like, Jesus, Indiana Jones is a mass murderer. Right. But you don't right. care. No. <laughs> Too cool to care. Yeah. 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 No, it made me be like, for, for Halloween, I'm like, should I go as Dr. Jones again? Yes. You totally yep. should. It would be my second time doing it. But I mean, I'd have to have the, like, cobwebs all over me. <gasps> yes. That'd be perfect. Oh, the cops. Yep. Thank you, Rob, for joining us to talk about Harpoon and the Last Crusade. Um, so where can our listeners follow along with your work or what can we look forward to? Do you have anything to plug? That kind of thing. They won't be able to find me unless you have very <laughs> positive things to say, in which case, please find me. Uh, but uh, Epic Films is releasing this in the United States on October 8th. We have a mini theatrical, which is crazy because I can't imagine people actually going to the cinema to watch this movie. So good for you, crazy people that want to go see this. Uh, And then, yeah, I think we should be across all the VOD platforms and stuff as well. I'm going to be at the New York screening on October 3rd. I'm going to be at the Manchester Grimfest screening on October 6th. And then I'm going to be at Sitges on October 8th and 9th. So if you're there and you see the movie... And you want to come tell me how awesome it is? Great. If you don't, fuck off. <laughs> yes, fuck off. <laughs> it comes from me too. Yeah. <laughs> um, so are you working on anything new? Uh, yes. Um, I'm writing the next one. All 
right. and I've got a very specific set of circumstances that it has to happen under, or I'm maybe not going to do it. Mike Peterson, my producer, is actively kicking me in the ass to try and finish the script. <laughs> um, it, it's it's exploring the opposite end of friendship and uh, how f- I've had enough to say about toxic friendship, but now I've got the opposite where I want to discuss how far you'd go to help your friends and uh, oh. it's a I don't know how much y- y'all are aware of Vancouver, but it's basically a border town. It's not as bad as Tijuana, mm-hmm. but it is a border town, and you're always one step away from s- some really interesting crime stories. Oh. Now the movie's now the movie's not set in Vancouver, but it's um it, it takes a deep dive into some really creepy crime stuff that we've been one step removed from hmm. and it's kind of in the Jeremy Saulnier lo- okay. area of like either a blue ruin or green room and so oh, wow. cool. it's in that area but it's still going to have my weird level of insanity to it <laughs> that sounds awesome if it gets made so can I can I join Mike in kicking your butt to get it written <laughs> it's hard man it's tough it's very I know. tough I know but it's uh, I, I'm going to be working on it on my flights to next week as I'm traveling with the last of the film circuits before I say no more traveling for the rest of the year and I should have something in November that we're going to start sharing with people awesome. and, and then we'll see what happens there awesome that's Good. so exciting um, so thanks everyone for listening to Scarred for Life podcast um, you've heard from us but we obviously want to hear from you listeners uh, what's your experience with The Last Crusade send us an email at scarredforlifepodcast at gmail.com and we might feature you in an upcoming episode you can also reach out to us on Twitter I'm at MB McAndrews and I'm at Gaily Dreadful and of course please tag us and follow us at, at Scarred Podcast if you want to talk about the podcast on Twitter And don't forget our Mondo poster contest. You can find details about it in our first episode. The contest closes on October 21st, so make sure you get those ratings and reviews out there. And we'll announce the winner during our fourth episode that launches on November 4th. Thanks, everyone, and stay creepy. Thanks. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.